Hey, good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, actually here live, right in the studio, in front of the uh, pewter PRN microphone in our brand new studios. Wow. Uh, so we had a few repeats uh, for the past couple of weeks while studios were getting ready. And uh, I just wanted to come in alone to make sure I could get here and figure out how to write down the directions for future guests. So I've got a bunch of guests lined up for future shows. Stay tuned. You'll find us here every Monday at 10 a.m., on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm or on your PRN app or uh, in iTunes or wherever you get your, uh, what is it, blogs. Uh, So uh, tune in every week and you can catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. So what did I want to talk about today? I was... um, it's been a few weeks, so I've, I've accumulated a few more audio books. I can't read anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I, I get in bed, which is when I have some time in the evening, you know, maybe an hour or so. And then I say, well, should I read this book or should I watch uh, two uh, uh, repeat episodes of Big Bang Theory? <laughs> and it ends up being Big Bang Theory. But... I spend a lot of time uh, getting around on uh, uh, walking or in public transit or driving or whatever. So I'm very big on audio books. And uh, so I just want to go over what I've been, I'll say reading, but it's actually listening to. Although uh, there's another one I'll mention right now. I'll talk more about it when it's available, but my... Late mother, Griselda Lobel, was a brilliant woman, a very interesting person, one of the, the uh, in the class with the first women to be permitted to go to Columbia Law School. And she wrote a mystery novel which, uh, with her husband, my father, which you can find online. It's, uh, <clears throat> and there's a whole discussion. Uh, I was just reading in a, a blog this morning how Microsoft is uh, closing down its servers that provided ebooks. They're getting out of the ebook business. And if you bought an ebook from them, you were never permitted to download it. You got it on the server, <clears throat> or if you did download it, you needed their um, their software to access it due to uh, what is it? Digital rights management or something like that. DRM. I didn't even know what that was. <clears throat> so I looked up DRM on Wikipedia and explained, you know, that's what keeps you from uh, copying movie CDs and stuff like that. Well, competent hackers can always defeat it. But that means all your e-books are gone. They're going to refund your money. But what what is that? Uh, I've been... um, I've been thinking about this and this digital world, and I'm the biggest fan. I'm knee-deep in it. Been teaching it since the uh, since the 1960s, and uh, but uh, I've been teaching for now. Should I say this? 50 years, and uh, teaching uh, uh, in an architecture school in New York, and I've got my slides from 50 years ago, and my ectochrome slides. I was worried when I took them. Uh, use ectochrome because it's uh, adjusted to, I think it was 3,400 Kelvin. I don't remember exactly. But you get uh, these big, very hot light bulbs at uh, the same temperature, color temperature as the film. And as a result, you get perfect uh, color. (coughs) And uh, so it's not Kodachrome, it's, it's this ectochrome. And I, I had a copy stand, which I still have. I, I, maybe I'll throw it away. I mean, I, I'm paying too much money for a storage unit for this kind of stuff. But anyway, so I have my camera's on the copy stand. It can go up and down. And I have these two or four very hot light bulbs. And I'd copy images from books. 
and I would buy boatloads of books, you know, like coffee table-like uh, color, beautiful images, use my teaching. And which is a copyright issue, but apparently you can get away with it in uh, teaching in a nonprofit. Anyway, so then the worry was, are these slides going to fade? How long do they last? You might remember if your uh, grandparents ever showed you uh, slides of their trip <laughs> or trips or grandchildren, you, in the, in the inflated uh, pool or whatever, uh, that, you know, they turn kind of red, you know, kind of a rusty red color. So there's some color film that goes bad. But um, this ectochrome did not. And here it is 50 years later. I look at those slides, and I don't know. It could be some degradation, but I can't see any problem. Uh, on the other hand, I have a box, uh, you know, a banker's box of hard disks from my various, what I've done over the decades, newsletters, teaching, uh, writing articles, books, and God knows where all my stuff is. Some of it might be on those hard disks, but they don't have connectors that fit my current computer. And sure, for a lot of money, I can go to a service that uh, <clears throat> you know keeps all the old computers, hook it up, and they can uh, transfer it to something I can plug into USB, and, of course, in 10 years, that won't work. So I'm very, you know, concerned about this digital world in uh, what of our stuff is going to actually disappear. And uh, I um, give you an example. My, my, uh, one, one of my colleagues, uh, I, I did their book. And it was typed on a computer whose operating system is no longer current on software that doesn't exist anymore. Well, fortunately, I had a paper copy. So then that had to be scanned. Uh, and then that had to be cleaned up. And it was, it was a horror story. Uh, I should have just been able to take the file. Now, if I had saved it in RFT, right, which is uh, Microsoft's format, I could have done that, and then the concurrent word would have opened it. And there was no fancy formatting, so that was not a, a problem. But it, we're in this very, you know, for all of our claiming to be knee-deep in information, we're in this very ephemeral world. Anyway, my um, mother wrote this beautiful book um, about her growing up in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. I'll tell you more about it when it's available. I just last night from Amazon got the uh, proof copies. So Amazon has this great service. God knows how long that'll last. But anyway, actually, they've already changed it. Um, they merged it with another service. But she wrote the book in 1990, and it wasn't really publishable. We sent it to a few people we knew, but no one was interested. And now, this is the third or fourth book I've done with Amazon self-publishing. And you just uh, um, save the body text and the cover as two separate PDFs. And I used to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I used to be able to format that stuff. I did newsletters with uh, uh, PageMaker and later Quark, but I can't anymore. And if I take a course in it, which I do occasionally, it doesn't help because unless you do it all the time, you uh, you can't keep up on that stuff. So I have a designer do it, and he's very reasonable. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it look, it is a real book. Looks like a totally professional book. And so I finally approved the PDFs and we sent them off to Amazon. So I just got the proof books, the actual physical books. And there are a couple of my um, 
you know, my sister and her kid and all that, uh, sending them copies so that to see if there's anything they catch that we want to change, and then it'll be available. So that's terrific. I can do that. So that's a book I've been involved with. Uh, There's another book. I did a very important book on the architect Louis Kahn called Between Silence and Light. Too esoteric for this show. (laughs) It's very inside baseball architecture. But maybe I'll talk about it someday. But it's, um, uh, I'm very fortunate. The book has been in print for 40 years. It was published by Shambhala, which is this really cool press. Uh, They're um, uh, a really nifty Buddhist press. And I was involved. It was uh, founded by Chukim Trumper Rinpoche followers. And I was uh, part of Rinpoche's uh, <coughs> Buddhist studies community. And they, uh, so they knew me, the publishers knew me, and they liked the book, and they published it. And it does well. It's been in print, for, as I said, for 40 years. And uh, I've now done another book on the architect Louis Kahn, this one focusing, well, Between Silence and Light looks at the parallels between uh, Kahn's philosophy and Eastern thought, particularly uh, Taoism, as we see in uh, the Tao Te Ching. And this uh, new book that I now have a very... uh, a prestigious architectural publisher for, is doing uh, this book on Khan's buildings. Well, I'll talk more about that when it's available, and who maybe that'll be a year or so. We're, we're just now working on the illustrations. But anyway, uh, it's interesting contrasting the electronic world with the paper world. And my my parents wrote a mystery novel, The Shadow and the Blot, published in 1949, and it was uh, quite well-received. You know, I got good reviews in The New Yorker and all that kind of stuff. It's a very literary um, uh, mystery novel. And the there was only one printing. It did well, and actually a major Broadway figure wanted to do a musical based on it. That would have that would have changed my whole life, you know. <laughs> we would have we would have been Broadway people and he died of a heart attack. Uh just as the project was getting started. So it never happened. But there was a point where, you know, I realized I hadn't read the book. No, I think I'd had, but many, many years ago. And uh so I wanted to read the book and my mother always kept a copy in a Ziploc bag, you know, so she would have a copy. And anytime I want to, you know, and I, I, when I want to read a book, I'll buy it. I can't keep track of my books, you know. <laughs> it's in storage somewhere. So I just go online and buy a used copy of this book from 1949. There's always somebody selling it, and if there's only one person, and it's a very important book, it'll be expensive. But otherwise, you know, you pay uh, maybe uh, f- three or four dollars plus four dollars shipping, and you've got just about any book. So that's fantastic. And I just don't see that happening with uh, electronics. Anyway, speaking of electronics, I've been listening to books. So I want to bring you up to date on what I've been listening to and see if anything inspires you. Actually, I'm always looking for good books, you know, and somehow my, uh, how to put it, cultural vibrations are not in tune with the New York Times book review section. So there's always some novel about somebody finding themselves, and well, I don't know, it's not my thing. Don't want to put it down, but it's not my thing. So here and there I find what to read. Somehow, I don't know where it was, maybe something on Twitter or Facebook, but I ran across that <laughs> Phyllis Chesler, prominent second-wave feminist, had just published a book, A Politically Incorrect Feminist, Creating a Movement with Bitches, Lunatics, Dykes, Prodigies, Warriors, and Wonder Women. So uh, she wrote some books that I might even have read. My late wife certainly read them uh, in the 60s and the days of uh, second-wave feminism. And I figured, you know, this would be a good survey of 
Um, and it may even indicate what she thinks about contemporary feminism, which I think has in a lot of ways become problematic, which actually, when I finish her book, I'll ask Phyllis Chesler if she'll come on the show and get her take on it, on feminism today. But <clears throat> turns out she was born Orthodox Jewish in Brooklyn in 1940. Well, I was born in 1941 and grew up in Great Neck from 1950 on. And so there's this real resonance with her book. You know, all the stuff she's talking about while growing up is stuff I'm familiar with. And so I really enjoy that about how people's take on a world I knew, which I'll get to more of in a moment. So anyway, uh, on the bus coming over to do the show this morning, I um, uh, started reading our book, or started listening to our book, and uh, I'll have more to say when I when I uh, get further into it, as long as 12 hours. 12 hours and 7 minutes. Cool. Uh, now, just totally unrelated. I Something struck me, and I said, you know what? I, I, I never listened to, but I did read Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest. It's an incredible book. Some people think his best, but they're, you know, The Thin Man is incredible. The Maltese Falcon is one of the greats of all time. Of course, helped quite a bit by the Humphrey Bogart, Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor movie, uh, but with Sidney Greenstreet and uh, Peter Lorre. I mean, it's just uh, incredible. But uh, Red Harvest is a, a fascinating book. It's a, a detective who's a continental op. He's a detective with the Continental Detective Agency. And he gets a um, request for help from a young newspaper publisher in a mill town. I'm, I'm picturing it as near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I don't know if it, I don't think it says it's called Personville and uh, 40,000 people. But it's that kind of part of the world. And when he gets there, the client uh, has uh, just been killed. Or he's killed just when he gets there. So he takes this as a personal insult. Um, you know, the guy had called for his help. He wasn't able to help. So he's going to um, <coughs> dig into this. And it turns out the town is totally corrupt. You know, gamblers and bootleggers and the the uh, mine boss who owns the town and all that. And he's going to clean it up. And the way he does it is he sets them at each other's throats. And uh, it's just murder and mayhem. And the um, uh, so that's Red Harvest. So highly recommended Dashiell Hammett. Uh, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, the two great 1920s, 30s mystery writers, um, who are worth rewriting at any time. Uh, next book I have on my, I printed out my library from Audible, which is scary because, you know, now Audible doesn't even download the books uh, to my, well, I used to be, I would download the book to my computer. Now I have it. Now I can put it on any of my um, iTunes linked devices. And I've, you know, I use my phone, but I like the old, um, uh, what is it, iPod Micro. Is the mini, and then they made the micro. And it's so nifty. It's about the size of three sticks of gum. And <laughs> what I have, it's got, it's got, uh, uh, okay, it's an MP3 player. I can put a dozen books on it. It's, um, you know, I can put as much music on it as you want. It's so light, you can barely, you don't know it's in your pocket. I use it when I exercise. And then the one I have has an FM radio and a video camera, <laughs> all in something the size of a couple of sticks of gum. So anyway, I could put it on anything. And now what happens is I buy the book, and it, immediately, it automatically goes to my phone. 
Now, who knows if Audible goes out of business, if those books disappear. Uh, it, again, about this ephemeral digital world, whereas I'm paying too much for it, but I've got a mini storage full of books. I have them. And uh, a book like, oh, let's just say Understanding Media by Marshall McLuhan, one of the great 20th century books, uh, extremely influential on me. I've done two or three shows on McLuhan. Uh, go to visionaries.podbean.com and you can uh, see the shows. Um, and, you know, God knows where my copy from college of Understanding Media is. I think I actually found it. But I just go on uh, Amazon or A Books and I can buy a used copy. Used to be I had to hunt the shelves at Strand Bookstore. and But now you can just go, uh, go online, buy a used copy because the physical print book is still there. Now, <laughs> there's a little problem with books from around uh, 1950 to 1970. And the way they make paper is they pound wood into a pulp, and, uh, but it has these long fibers in it. They hold it together, and they make paper out of that. And uh, to it was a relatively expensive process. And if they used acid, they could make the pulp without the expensive pounding. And, you know, great, cheap paper. And that's what they used in books. And then after about 10 years, the book started turning yellow the acid in the paper started to dissolve the, the books. So all those books are now disappearing. And there are libraries that have a very expensive, difficult, special process of leaching the acid out of the paper. Oh, they could just Xerox the book. <laughs> uh, which you can now do, right? And you can also scan it. So all these books, fortunately, Google has scanned. Although... God knows how you get a hold of them, right? It's books.google.com. But then there's the whole copyright thing. And I, I can't believe the courts didn't say it's our responsibility to work this out. I mean, I don't mind that Google is restricted from making copyright books available. Uh, but they should be able to make them available at a price, you know. And as the author, I get a cut. And I, w I would even say the author has to opt out. Um, just, you know, God forbid this stuff should be available. Uh, God forbid you should be able to get a book. But anyway, um, so books last. And uh, as I described, my parents, Shadow on the Blood, which I think preceded acid paper uh, because the copies, I've gotten a couple of them over the years, uh, used copies are in uh, in perfect shape. So then I am uh, just downloaded, have not started, The Robots Are Coming, The Future of Jobs in the Age of Automation by Andreas Oppenheimer. Well, the book's in Spanish, so it was translated. And Oppenheimer, I saw him on um, C-SPAN. One of the ways I find out about books. So C-SPAN books on the weekend, C-SPAN 2. There are three of them, one, two, and three on TV. So I watched that on the weekend, and they'll have authors talk about their books. Well, I'm a super big fan. And the thing about that is the author usually talks for 20 minutes, and then there's questions, discussion with the audience for 20 minutes. So, you know, it'll be 40 minutes to an hour we, as, as opposed to, you know, a soundbite, you know, a two-minute soundbite on talk radio. So that's really terrific. And um, uh, the one, my one objection to C-SPAN, C-SPAN books, is that it's political, it only does political books. Now, it'll do culture if it's a cultural issue which is in current political discussion. 
but it won't do something like uh, contemporary literary criticism. So you think about it, and so here's an author talking about their book. And if you read the book, you get more in-depth to some aspects of it. If you don't want to read the book, you get an overview of what it's about. And if you're looking for what books should you read, it's a good way to to find out. Now, so what occurred to me was uh, on, I'll just pick one university. On any given week, there's probably, I don't know what, 10, 20, 30 major lectures by authors at Harvard. I'll just pick one university. I know every week we have a lecture in my architecture school by a prominent architect. And they might have recently done a book, but there's something current in their work that's of cultural interest, architectural interest and cultural interest. And my school also has a really great photography lecture series and others as well. But just think about Harvard. Uh, There's got to be 5, 10, 20 terrific lectures every week. And they're lost, they're gone. Um, it, you know, unless you happen to be at that university, in that department, with your butt in the auditorium that week, you don't get that lecture. Why aren't they all recorded and on some super university um, uh, coalition of universities YouTube uh, and just making them all available? So... I don't know. Um, Actually, YouTube itself has a lunchtime lecture series where they have prominent people on, culturally prominent people, and it leans a little bit toward tech, but not particularly. A lot on entrepreneurship and creativity, etc. And they're all on YouTube. They're all on uh, somewhere on Google, I guess, but they're easier to find on YouTube. So... Anyway, I saw Andreas Oppenheimer lecturing about the book, and I'm not big into robots. I I do a whole course on technology. Um, I'm working on uh, a book about uh, uh, creativity and futurism, and I lecture on technology, and somehow robots don't turn me on. I mean, an AI doesn't really turn me on. So I talk a lot about um, networking, networking channels, uh, computer, computer power, quantum computers. These all, I think, have major impacts. And I was, I was always skeptical of artificial intelligence because I, I in around 19, oh, I don't know, 63, I had a roommate. Uh, I had a house. I was at the University of Pennsylvania. So me and a buddy rented an entire four-story house, and then we filled it with roommates to, um, and we all shared the rent, and and we all shared it equally. We should have made it the others pay our rent, but anyway, um, one of them was Morton, and Morton was majoring in computer science, and or graduate student in computer science, and boy, was there nothing there. I'm sorry, in artificial intelligence. Uh, there's a lot there in computer science. And over the years, I got all the books, all the popular books on artificial intelligence. And I remember arguments like, you know, you have a uh, an automatic calculator, an electronic calculator. So if you hit one plus one equals, the calculator understands that you asked it what is one plus one? And it tells you it is two. It is artificially intelligent. B.S. I mean, you take one marble and put it in a dish, in a bowl. You take another marble, put it in a bowl, and it's two marbles. That doesn't mean that the bowl is artificially intelligent. Give me a break. So this is going on in this stuff like the Turing test and the Chinese room and all this stuff. And then, you know, they, they were attempting to do general artificial intelligence, and they had these simple early breakthroughs, and they, wow, wow, you know, in 10 more years, 
Uh, and, you know, so then the joke was artificial intelligence is always 30 years in the future, and it's been there for 60 years, you know. How many years? 50 years, whatever. <clears throat> so anyway, all of a sudden, a couple things happen. Well, then they had expert systems, you know, that they'll, they'll ask a lot of uh, cardiologists, how do you diagnose heart disease? What do you look for? And then uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the computer can do that. Oh, you know, does the person uh, have shortness of breath on exercising, turn red, have a rapid pulse, and fall down occasionally? You know, <laughs> that adds up to heart disease. Uh, so it's called expert systems. And that, some of those do well. Actually, they're, they're doing really great on stuff like reading x-rays and stuff like that. But then suddenly, red still wasn't, you know, getting anywhere near general artificial intelligence. All of a sudden, something happened. And about two years ago, a big article in the New York Times, New York Times Magazine section, about a group of, uh, I think the team was about five people at Google, worked, and, you know, these people work really hard. You know, this is where you hear about the 80-hour weeks and uh, who really wants to work that way? Well, there are people who do. And they put together uh, a new version of Google Translate. So over the years, if you, I get this junk mail in Chinese. So what is, you know, and it could be dangerous, so I delete it. So then, you know, you grab the text and you plug it into translate.google.com and you get it in English. Well, it's gibberish, and if you work on it for a half an hour, you might be able to figure it out in English. So suddenly, you now, so here's the test. They did a new version of Google Translate for Chinese, and they did Chinese first. I think they're up to five languages, and eventually they'll do all of them. But you take uh, some sophisticated paragraph of uh you know, 100, 200 words, uh, plug it into Google Translate, translate it into Chinese, and then plug the Chinese back into and translate it back into English. And it's, you know, it gets everything. It's like 90% the same words, and it's 99% accurate. Uh, you know, a couple of words, you know, it might say... Uh, I don't know, squishy instead of soft or something like that. Uh, but <clears throat> it's still the same meaning. And um, so this stuff's starting to happen in artificial intelligence. And then this thing happened where, yeah, you know, eventually they, they can play chess. And they can play chess better than any uh, world champion chess player. And now the, the interesting thing now is uh, teams of computer-human teams play each other. And a computer-human team is better than any human or any computer. So there's still stuff the human can do the computer can't do. But uh, then they did Go, and everybody said, oh, Go is 100 times more complicated than, uh, than, uh, computer, than chess, and they'll never do that. And Zip, they did it. And so they use neural nets, which maybe we'll have somebody on sometime talking about neural nets. But uh, when neural nets first appeared, it was said, this, these will be incredible. But they needed to be layered. And it's only recent. They needed two things. They needed uh, immense computer power to get layers. They now do 50 layers of neural nets. And number two, they need massive amounts of data for their learning. And, you know, now... People like Google have massive amounts of data from watching all your searching. But anyway, um, so they went to attack Go, and I apologize to the team involved. There's a story here. It's, it's well known who they are. I don't recall. But what they did was they uh, taught a rudimentary level of Go to this uh, self-learning uh, neural net uh, artificial intelligence, and then 
in a matter of just days, it played itself tens of millions of times and learned, uh, you know, more and more sophisticated understandings to go, and it now can easily beat any human uh, go master. So now maybe I'm getting a little bit interested in artificial intelligence. Same thing about computers. Uh, remember Robbie from Forbidden Planet? Uh, yeah, it's going to walk around. And then everybody's worried about um, Terminator and is it mean technology is going to become dangerous? <laughs> and I like to kid my friends who worry about that. Uh, you know, are we are we supposed to be worried about our toasters uh, uh, raising rising up against us? <clears throat> but uh, they're becoming more sophisticated. And if you count something like self-driving cars as robots. Uh, whoa, apparently we are getting there. Now, you know, self-driving cars are maybe one year off. Now, if three years from now they're still one year off, uh, hmm, but if they really are here in a year, and they claim, there's two claims. One is they're really close, you know, like, uh, you know, this company has ordered uh, 25,000 self-driving uh, Volvos for <coughs> for uh, taxis. Uh, 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 Tesla claims that all of its cars are uh, fully capable of self-driving. Now all they have to do is flip the switch. So we'll see. But if you count that as a robot, I guess they're coming and they are going to have an impact. And then you see things like... Uh, this morning, um, Peter Diamantes' newsletter is uh, had something about uh, a mind-controlled robot arm. So, you know, these will help paralyze people and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, this guy, Andreas Oppenheimer, talking about the robots are coming, was very articulate about understanding this. You know, he, and, and it's not wild speculation. He's a a big wheel, a big enough wheel <laughs> that when he, this is his second book like this, he can contact the leading people in every major, you know, technology country and say, can I come and you'll show me around what you're doing? And he goes to Japan. He says he checked into a hotel. He and his family checked into a hotel, 100 rooms, 20 robots, one human being checked in at 10 o'clock at night. So uh, there's only one human being there. So maybe it's really happening. And you hear about robotic sushi chefs and stuff like that. So uh, I'll see. I'll let you know more about the book when I start listening to it. A uh, really major book that um, uh, I'm halfway through. Explaining Postmodernism, Expanded Edition, Stephen R. C. Hicks. Um, skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. Now, if you're a fan of somebody like, or, no, oh, I shouldn't say fan, I list, seriously listen to. And there are people who have Influenced me over the years, and it's always worth my <clears throat> rereading or listening to if you want to, um, uh, you know, the ones who are available on YouTube. Uh, <clears throat> so there's Marshall McLuhan, for me, Marshall, well, Oswald Spangler, who's not on YouTube, but Oswald Spangler's Decline of the West, and um, Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media, and um, Joseph Campbell, talking about mythology. So, you know, I'll always go back and follow up on that. And if you're interested in this stuff, um, I have a colleague, John David Ebert, who does these fantastic um, YouTubes. We'll take a book like Spangler's Decline of the West, and he'll go through it chapter by chapter and explain what each chapter is about. And he's done that for the French post-structuralists. So... Um, 
uh, and he was working on it for, um, now the name's slipping in my mind. But anyway, he did that for Major Book. He's doing it for Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae, and um, uh, Jordan Peterson's book, Not 12 Rules for Life, but the other one, uh, Something Meaning. Uh, maybe I have it on Maps of Meaning. Uh, <clears throat> so these can be really difficult, tedious books, some of these, and Ebert will go through them chapter by chapter for you. So I recommend that. But anyway, uh, one of Jordan Peterson's complaints of what he calls the Marxist, neo-Marxist post-structuralists are ruining the university, ruining the culture, and a real threat. Well, I tend to agree, but we'll talk more about that when I finish explaining postmodernism. But if you want to understand postmodernism, you want to understand what's going on, uh, I highly recommend this book. And he described something. I mean, it's become apparent to me that academia today, and I guess we can call it postmodernism, is anti-enlightenment. And I see that in my young colleagues. Uh, when we get to, um, so I teach a survey of world architectural history. Required course for the whole school. <coughs> and I've got uh, we have four semesters. <coughs> and so there's about 10 of us. And we share doing the lectures. Then we each go off and do our own section. And so I'm listening to lectures by my young colleagues. And I started giving these lectures myself, pardon me, 50 years ago. And um, based on what I had learned five years earlier, when I had studied this stuff in school, and... So now we've got 50, 55 years of, well, the pyramids haven't changed, and uh, Andre, the Renaissance hasn't changed, but how we see it has changed. And so I've been able to follow the kind of evolution of scholarship as, well, my colleagues in this 10-people team, most of them keep turning over because there'll be recent PhDs and then they'll get a full-time job some, and we hire them part-time. And then they'll get a full-time job somewhere and leave, and then we need to replace them. So we're continually getting new ones. So it's keeping me abreast of contemporary scholarship. So I see this. Um, okay, I'm going to be a little nasty and fair here. I see this cynical uh, anti-enlightenment anti-Europe, Marxist, postmodernism, coloring some of their lectures. Now, I don't have any problem with non-Western. I mean, I used to give those lectures, but I don't anymore because my interpretation was to come from their cultures. So when I talk about China, you know, let's read... uh, uh, Lao Tzu's The Tao Te Ching. Let's read Journey to the West about Monkey King. And <clears throat> this will give us a sense of the underlying structure, what's different about Chinese culture that leads to them having a different architecture. And we now, uh, it's only acceptable to have a materialist interpretation. They're, they're, they're different because they have different natural resources. You know, Japan has more wood than stone, so they build in wood. I talk about Japan building in wood because wood is a natural material that decays back into nature. And the Chinese and Japanese see themselves culturally, historically, as an integral part of nature rather than, oh, and then interested in the flow of all things how we're part of the flow of nature, rather than seeing human beings as metaphysically different and separate from nature and standing outside of and controlling it. So these are two very different worldviews. 
about the psychic structures of these cultures. Well, I just used the world worldview, psychic uh, structure of a culture. None of this is permitted in academia today. Very different point of view in postmodernism, which is materialist. Anyway, um, so where does this come from? And this book, Explaining Postmodernism by Hicks, looks at the Enlightenment, which is itself a very materialist um, uh, point of view, but it introduces uh, rationality, reason, tolerance uh, into European and then world culture. And this is all science. This is all very much rejected today and uh, under severe attack throughout academia. And why? Where does it come from? And this describes its sources in Rousseau and uh, Kant, who were actually very um, vicious anti-Enlightenment figures. Anyway, terrific book, highly recommended. Talk more about it when I finished it. So just a few more things uh, wrapping up. I'm somewhat of an expert on the architect Louis Kahn. Kahn is the, we like to say, the second most important American architect after Frank Lloyd Wright. And if you're interested in architecture and you're interested in a very human story, uh, Kahn had a, uh, shall we say, complicated uh, personal life involving several women and several kids. So one of them is his son, Nathaniel Kahn, who made a movie, My Architect, about his father. It's an Academy Award-nominated documentary, a beautiful human story, interviews with fascinating people, and beautiful film presentation of the buildings. And you can see, as you move through a building in film, you get a sense of it. You don't just from still photos. So anyway, that's Khan. And I'm probably the foremost expert on Khan's spiritual philosophy, which is the subject of my book, Between Silence and Light, Spirit in the Architecture of Louis Icahn. So I'm doing another building on his, another book on his buildings. And I figured the book that came out uh, a couple of years ago, a biography of Khan. And uh, this kind of, um, I mean, Khan taught at the school I went to. And I'm still involved with this, that school and its archives. So, you know, I know the the outlines of Khan's life. But what uh, Wendy Lesser did in this biography, and she covers the architecture and does a good job of it, but it's a biography biography, interviewing everybody who's alive, who knew Khan, and looking at interviews and material from the people who uh, are no longer alive. And, you know, it's almost like this month-to-month portrayal of uh, somebody's life. Really uh, recommended book. You say to Brick, well, okay, let me do that again. You say to Brick, the life of Louis Kahn. So (laughs) Kahn... has this very spiritual, poetic philosophy, which my book is about. And one of his famous phrases is, you say to Brick, what do you want, Brick? And Brick says, I like an arch. And you say to the Brick, I have a lintel. I have a concrete lintel that can span an opening, and it's very economical. What do you think of that, Brick? And Brick says, I like an arch. So she's capturing that whole uh, little soliloquy there, by Khan in You Say to Brick. So very recommended and um, just finished that one. I might, I might listen again. I've got The Making of Donald Trump on here by David K. Johnson. I know nothing about it. There, I saw him interviewed. It seemed like a good one to read. I'm a New Yorker. I'm an architect. So I know who Donald Trump is. <laughs> one of my, my closest colleagues, uh, worked on the the first Trump Tower, uh, the one on Fifth Avenue. And, uh, you know, so I knew, and, and Trump was a very public New York cultural figure, very well covered in the New York media. So I know who he is, but yeah, it's time to find out more, right? 
but I'll, I haven't. Uh, I'm not very. I haven't started that. <clears throat> There's um, another one I have here: possible minds. Twenty-five ways of looking at AI. John Brockman, editor. Now, John Brockman's a very interesting figure. He's a um, he's kind of a writer, publicist, PR person, and he. Uh, I knew him when I was a, a cultural figure in 60s New York, and Brockman was doing the PR for a movie called Head. And so he did this really bizarre PR campaign. And he then became a book agent. And I, I stayed in touch with him, and he was always doing interesting stuff. And he got the most interesting clients, kind of the, the people doing cutting-edge understanding the implications of new developments in science. And 1976, I get, I was away for a year. I get back to New York. I had a book proposal. I sent it to him and he said, this is great. And he wasn't able to sell it. So that was that for that book. But he had a typewritten Xerox list of his clients and their current projects. And it was about maybe six pages with maybe oh six or six or eight people per page. And I was on that list. So he would mail it to everybody. And it was kinda of, you know, pre internet, how you these are the most interesting people. Um uh and I go through the list and see who's doing what. Maybe I should get that person's book. I should know about that person. These are cool people. Uh stalking the wild asparagus or uh uh I should you know, I've got I've got one of those in my file somewhere. If I ever dig it up, we'll go through it. These are the cool books of, you know, nineteen seventy eight or whatever. But anyway, Brockman eventually became the agent for the coolest scientists. And he started a website called Edge. So I think it's edge.org. Uh, so go find it. And he gathers these really cool, interesting people and interviews them, has articles about them, has videos of them, and keeps up on... Um, what they're up to, and then periodically he will um, uh, ask them a question. He'll say, what do you believe that you can't prove? And about 25 people will write back anywhere from one to six pages, and he'll make that a book. And uh, so this is one of those books. He's got another one that's not out in audio yet, but uh, highly recommended. And so, uh, wrapping up, and we'll do more, uh, maybe more books next week, or I'll have a guest. This is John Lobel, your host. You've been listening to Visionaries at prn.fm. And we're on every Monday, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>